new year, new you. That's the kind of thing you hear around this time of the year. Well, maybe not so much anymore, 12 days in <laughs> to the year. You know, I, I appreciate that a new year can signal a new start. Um, although I confess I've never really been one to make New Year's resolutions, uh, mostly because, man, I don't like to disappoint myself or others, <laughs> and so I don't like to break promises, even to myself. Uh, so if you've got resolutions, though, bless you, may that go well. Uh, but I read something I think was really important recently. Um, it was a Christian author who was writing about, he says, you know, New Year's resolutions, like, that's kind of cool, but what's really going to change your life is actually a change in your habits, Because really the sum total of your life is all these tiny decisions that form you in one direction or another. In fact, a good definition of character, like what sort of person you are in your everyday actions, it goes like this. Your character or your characteristic way of being is the sum total of all your habits. Like, for example, what kind of parent am I? Well, you could look at my habits in parenting and you could say that's the sort of parent you are. Those are your habits that you formed in in doing that. So the habits we commit ourselves to, that's what shape our lives. They shape our lives to go in that direction or in this direction. And in our text this morning, we're going to see this incredibly rich summary of what happens when the Spirit of God first comes on the church, gets a hold of the church in Jerusalem that first day of Pentecost, and the commitments and habits and practices that they held on to. So our text this morning comes right after we hear that the Holy Spirit comes from heaven, just as Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would, and it fills the church. So Peter, he stands up and he begins to make sense of this moment in light of God's plan, uh, of the way that the Spirit comes on the church, and then he preaches who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in light of all of the Hebrew Bible up to that point. And then we read that those who accepted this news about Jesus were baptized, as we witnessed this morning, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What an incredible picture of what happens when God gets a hold of a city. So what does this huge crowd of Jesus followers do? What practices and habits shape their life? Here's what we read. I'm going to invite you, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 42 to 47 together. It's on the screen behind me as well, and and it says, they devoted themselves. And that word devoted could be translated, they persevered in. Like, they made a habit of these things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Four things. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This text functions as a summary of this incredible moment in the life and history of the church. And though it's not repeatable, of course, it is history. 
it does provide something of a model for our life and community, the kind of habits that we would form too. So we're going to begin by looking at those four key devoted priorities of the church. And then we're going to look and shift to, to, to see this kind of what the role of the miraculous has in this and the atmosphere of this community. So let's pray as we dig in. Father, I'm just so glad that you inspired Luke to do the research he needed to do, to interview the people he needed to interview. And by your spirit, he recorded this, uh, this text of scripture. And I thank you, God, that um, we today are still being moved and shaped by your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would help us to hear this text with fresh ears this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So let's begin with the first one, the apostles' teaching. What is that? Well, if we go back and we reread the whole of Acts chapter 2, which we're not going to do, but what we would get a sampling of the apostles' teaching. Here we see Peter. He begins to interpret the actions of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He particularly uses the book of Joel to do that. And then he begins to preach Jesus as God's promised rescuing ruler, the Messiah, who is innocent and who is fulfilling God's plan to redeem what was lost to sin. And so if we go back to that question, what's the apostles teaching? It's the good news of Jesus, of forgiveness and new life. It's all that Jesus taught about life under God's gracious kingdom rule. It's the whole of the scriptures understood in light of the coming of Jesus. And so if Acts 2 is any guide as to how we're to function as a church, and I really think it is, we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching when we listen to the message of the Bible, which recorded here, using the same lens that the apostles used. What do I mean by that? I mean that we read the whole of the scripture, and the whole thing does matter, Old and New Testament. We read it all as Christians, not as rabbis. We read the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, in light of the climax of the story, the coming of Jesus. That's what Peter demonstrates in Acts 2. And if you look at every other preaching moment throughout the book of Acts, the same thing is happening. They're reading the Old Testament and seeing how Jesus is filling it full. And then the apostles' teaching for us, it's what gets recorded in the New Testament. The four books that begin the New Testament are the four Gospels, the story of Jesus told from four different angles to four different audiences, but all rich in helping us understand who Jesus is. And then the other New Testament writings are all about what does it mean to live as God's kingdom people in light of the Gospel. See, after Jesus' resurrection, he instructs his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, meaning helping people understand the good news of of Jesus and what he's done, and teaching them to obey everything he's commanded. So this Jerusalem church, they're doing just that. They're listening to the apostles' teaching, which is, well, it's what Jesus taught. And he's helping them to understand and put it into practice. This was a learning church. Their hearts set on Jesus. And we must be a learning church as well. See, the heart of, at the heart of our community, of our life groups, of our missional endeavors, All the ways that we work together as God's people begins with listening. Listening to God's word. And we find that written and recorded in the scriptures, which point us and lead us to meet the living word, Jesus Christ himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And so listening faithfully, that will always lead to more than simply learning, however. See, when the gospel gets rooted in our hearts, when we come alive to what God is calling us to, uh, mere Bible study in that setting would, would actually be missing the point if it doesn't translate into a robust, self-sacrificial, open-to-all sort of community. If Bible study doesn't lead to a deep sense of community and faithfulness in mission, then we've actually missed kind of the point of it. I can remember one morning a number of years ago, I was, I was reading, I was reading a text I was really familiar with, I was digging into it and enjoying it and trying to wrap my head around some of the ideas again. And then I had this really clear impression from God in that moment And it went like this, Dave, you know and understand this text. And I kind of remember thinking, yeah, I really do. Stop reading it and go do it. It's like we read in in James 1.21, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself, do what it says. Uh, This moment was a reminder. It's not that I stopped studying the Bible. That's not the point here. But the point was, I don't study the Bible just to learn stuff if I'm not going to go and put flesh and blood to the words on the page. It was a reminder to me that Bible study is never an ultimate goal, but standing under God's loving leadership, following our saving king in real life by being transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's the goal. We don't get to the end of our days and stand before the king of kings and then he gives us, you know, a Bible knowledge exam. That's just not what's going to happen. Thank goodness. Many of you are saying, I just, I love studying the scripture. I love knowing stuff. I love discovery. Bible study to me is awesome. But Bible study that ends in learning but not love is worse than useless. And Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, like this sounds pretty good so far, like knowledge and faith, but do not have love. I am nothing. The goal of our learning is love of God and neighbor. And that's why the devotion to the apostles' teaching always leads to more, and it does. Look what's next. Second thing, to fellowship. Now, I grew up in a Baptist church, not so unlike this one. And um, it might be that Baptists are perhaps best known, not just for a commitment to what the Bible teaches or to developing preachers like Charles Spurgeon or Billy Graham or, you know, being a big part of the, the mission movement. You know, Baptists are well-known for potlucks. That's, that's our thing, right? I, for me, growing up in the church, the word fellowship was virtually synonymous with next week we're going to have a potluck after church. Now, maybe the adults were hearing more in that than I was hearing, but for me, fellowship meant eating food, but not much more. But this word fellowship is so much bigger and more beautiful than that. The the Greek word is koinonia, and it means common. Could be translated close relationship or participation in community. I might translate this phrase like this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to participating in close relationship with each other as a community. Does that help? Um, In some ways, it was Tolkien's book, The Fellowship of the Ring, that helped redeem the word fellowship for me. Because fellowship is used in reference to this group of little hobbits, Frodo, Sam, Pippin, and Mary. And they're joined up with this most unlikely group, a wizard, an elf, 
a dwarf and two humans. I mean, you've got this diversity. Some of these groups actually had really bad blood in their history, but what they have in common is more significant than what this unlikely group have as difference. And so they bind themselves to each other, and they participate in this collective in an incredible mission that includes no less than facing down the forces of evil itself. And when trouble comes, and it does, it's this commitment to one another, to their fellowship, to their mission, that leads them, no matter what, to have each other's backs. And so what we see in this band of fellow travelers is they take care of each other. They speak the truth and rebuke and hope and encourage each other They help meet each other's physical and emotional needs, close relationship. That's the picture that emerges in their story. And it begins to picture for us what fellowship can mean too. And I think that every person on the planet is hungry to be connected to a community like that, whether we've really put our finger on it or not. We were created for fellowship, for sharing, for common for close relationship with God and others, and to work for God's purposes. And this is where the good news of Jesus is so key. It's so life-changing with its message of grace, of forgiveness of sins for people like me, that my heart is now filled with confidence, knowing that I'm so loved. And this means that I can truly put my pride aside to be able to freely give for the sake of others. And so how do do we create an environment where healthy, close relationship, that kind of culture can emerge and flourish? Well, the word vulnerability comes to mind. And we looked at this in our first study of the study guide, but I'm going to quote Oxford literary scholar and Christian writer C.S. Lewis again. He writes, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure... To keep it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. It's true, it's true that love cannot really emerge without a measure of risk. For if we are never known as we really are, can we really be close? See, vulnerability is necessary for relationships. Well, that is when it's used for the right purposes. Vulnerability, you see, can be used as an excuse for self-indulgence, or as an emotional unburdening in a very selfish and manipulative way as well. Ways that make things really about me, my problems, my issues, or this thing or that thing, rather than actually to serve those around us. Now, theologian Andy Crouch calls vulnerability exposure to meaningful risk. Meaningful risk, then, from a Christian point of view, means being open to speak words of love and tenderness, even when we're unsure of quite how they'll be received. It means taking the risk of asking a potentially awkward or challenging question that could lead someone to a deeply needed change or to know Jesus more. Uh, Ashley Hales, in her article on gospel-centered vulnerability, 
she notes how Jesus opened himself to meaningful risk all the time. He touched lepers and women who were bleeding. That was a religious faux pas. He challenged religious leaders when they needed to have their eyes open to God's grace. And ultimately, Jesus models vulnerability when he opens himself, when he exposes himself to the ultimately meaningful risk, death on a cross for us. That's the picture of what vulnerability, true vulnerability is about, meaningful risk to serve the needs and interests of others. So this means being brave enough maybe to share your own struggles and failures when it would be appropriate to help those around you. It means being willing to ask tough questions that could lead people into a closer and deeper relationship with Jesus, even if it feels awkward. So what do we need in order to like live with this meaningful risk? Two things. First, um, we can actually serve the needs of others rather than making it about me when we know how deeply we're loved and valued by God. So we don't need to use others for validation. We're already validated by Jesus' love for us. And perhaps you're here and you don't, you've never really got hold of that yet. or It's never got hold of you yet. This is the good news. The deepest hunger of your heart to be fully known and still fully loved, that's exactly what we see when Jesus opens himself up to us on the cross. You see, the, the cross pictures the reality that we all desperately need to be made whole, that the condition of our hearts is, as the pastor Augustine in the 5th century put it, he says we are homo incurvatus in se, which means the human turned in or curved in on him or herself. That's the basic posture of our hearts that needs to be met with God's grace and transformed so that I don't just live for myself anymore. That's what sin is. It's just self-centeredness, rebellion against God. I need to be forgiven and put back together so I can really love. I need God's grace. And that's exactly what Jesus is giving us. The cross is a sign of God's welcome to you. And when we open ourselves to that love, we're transformed. We're given a security that could never be lost or we could never gain in any other way. It could never be ultimately threatened. When we're rooted in that kind of love, we can be vulnerable without using it to seek validation. And that leads to the second point. When we're vulnerable, we are, pardon me, we are to be vulnerable for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others may know him more and be moved to greater faithfulness to his mission. So this community, they experienced fellowship as an outworking of God at work in them. And their fellowship was ultimately about bringing glory to God. And that's what we see next. The third, the breaking of bread. For the Christian faith, the meal or the table, even the food itself to some extent, is always about more than simply the food. All throughout the Bible, the table is the picture and pointer to what God will one day make ultimately true. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 25, we read this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine and the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. What is he talking about there? He's speaking of death itself. He will swallow up death forever. 
the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. God's ultimate purpose is new creation. And it's pictured as a great banquet. And you're invited. So when Jesus comes on the scene, comes as God in the flesh, he begins eating. This is really important. He eats. But he eats with the wrong sort of people, or so the religious leaders seem to think. They begin passing judgment on him for that. Why is he eating with those folks? And so Jesus begins telling them some stories. And in one of those stories, he said there was a man who had a son, and he took his inheritance, and he left, and he blew it. And when the son recognized that he had nothing, that he'd spent it all, he came home and he was gonna, he's going to tell his dad how he maybe could be welcomed back as a servant, but instead his father threw his arms around him and kissed his neck and said, throw a huge feast. Now the feast is not just incidental, it's central. Jesus is saying, this is the welcome that you receive. Yeah, mercy welcomes the son home, but grace throws a banquet. And that pictures what you and I are promised. Promise is God's welcome. So it's no wonder that Jesus used the table when he gathered his disciples and he tells them, repeat this act of breaking bread to remember God's provision of life. The bread is my body broken for you. The wine is my blood that was shed. As you commemorated God's liberating work, from Egypt, so now you're commemorating and remembering the liberating work from sin and death and evil itself. When you take this, I am your ultimate liberator, is what Jesus is saying through that meal. And so the breaking of bread in this newly formed church places Jesus at the center of their life together. It's a picture of sharing in the one who gives us life. And I know some life groups, um, you meet and you eat a meal weekly together. I love that picture. You say, that's really important to us. You do a potluck. I love it, love it, love it. Some have tables in other ways of snacks or desserts, but it's never really just about the food, is it? Be devoted to the same sort of way, I think. Being devoted to it has to do with sharing your life with each other. Sharing the basics of life, a meal, pictures that sense of family, of home, that our hearts are ultimately longing for. To have a seat at the table is to say to someone, you belong, come sit, join us. I've seen this often in our community. When there's been a painful experience in life, people step up and step in for each other. They bring meals. They hold kids. They cry together. They connect over coffee. They pray and share scriptures and encourage each other. To be devoted to the breaking of bread is a devotion to sharing in life that's centered in how Christ first loved us. It's to share a common life that is made common by our bond through Jesus who died and was raised again. The fourth commitment we read about is they devoted themselves to prayer. Man, I can remember when our small group, some of you are here today actually, and remember this with me, um, just young couples, is actually mostly just the only young couples in the church could all fit in one living room at one point in time. We would meet at Matt and Jill Volland's place, and it was during that time that my dad was dying of cancer. And I can remember very clearly our group just putting two chairs in the middle of the room, one for me, one for Catherine, and they prayed. They laid their hands on us, and we cried, and we trusted Jesus together, and we believed God together for his resurrection hope to fill us, to be with us. We needed others around us, joining 
their prayers to our pain. And God heard those prayers. And we experienced deep joy, not because the circumstances were good, they were far from it, but because God's grace was there. And so we have the absolute pleasure, not only, about, not only in learning about God together or sharing life together, not only in remembering Jesus together, we have the absolute pleasure of being in God's presence together, lifting up the needs and burdens of each other and our world around us in trust before our loving Father. Now, we've looked at these four practices of the early church. These are their habits and some of their key features. And you'll work through those actually in your Bible study this week. If you're not a part of a life group, sign up for one week and connect you and grab a book and get working through it. But then we see some other things, and, and we really need to focus now the rest of our time in seeing how the common life of these people actually had an incredible missionary impact as well. We need to pay attention for God is still at work in the world, and I don't want us to miss out on being a part of that. We see in the rest of the passage that God is powerfully at work in their midst. It says there's this sense of awe that comes over the community as the apostles performed many wonders and signs. And then that probably causes a lot of our brains to go, okay, well, what place do these wonders and signs have like in the life of the church here today? Luke, I think in summarizing this, he includes this description of the miraculous right alongside the more quote-unquote mundane elements of sharing food and giving your money to those who need help. And that's interesting because you don't see a major emphasis in one direction or another. In, in fact, you know, for many churches, they tend to fall into kind of camps where wonders and experiences are inordinately sought after and emphasized or where they're completely downplayed and the miraculous is almost like avoided. I think Luke records it this way because it happened this way. But the fact of many signs and wonders, that's doing something specific in that first setting as well. These miracles confirm the message of the apostles about Jesus. Um, Biblical scholar Eckhart Schnabel, he notes this. He says, it appears that the kind of miracles that Jesus performed were now being performed through the apostles as wonders and signs validated Jesus as God's promised Messiah. And Peter says that in verse 22 of the same chapter. They now confirm the ministry and message of the apostles as coming from God. And Luke gives us a sample of this. The very next story we see, uh, a man who's been unable to walk since birth. He's sitting at the temple. He's begging for money. That's his only form of income. Uh, He asks Peter for some spare change. And Peter says, I don't have any change. Let me give you what I have in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Get up and walk. And he does. And it causes quite a stir. But what Peter does with this reality is key. He connects this healing to the good news of Jesus. Peter very consciously shares what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. And he results in this invitation. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. This miracle is a legitimate work of compassion toward the man, and it legitimates the preaching of Jesus, the one who will, as we read, restore everything, and whom we must owe our deepest allegiance and obedience. So here's where maybe we need some more careful thought, though. Like, in what ways would these signs and wonders feature in our life together today? Well, let's start with the big picture. 
Uh, Miracles do show up in the Bible unapologetically, and so we believe them as a reality. But we need to notice they're not on every page either. Signs and wonders tend to come in clusters around certain points in salvation history. And with the coming of Jesus and the beginning of the church, the climax of the biblical storyline, really, we begin to see a really significant cluster of the miraculous. That means that the frequency of miracles will likely be different at distinct moments in history, and that is completely God's sovereign choosing. How he chooses to show up and work at certain times in history, that's up to him. If you say, well, I've never seen a miracle before, guess what? There's people in the Bible who never saw miracles. They're not on every page. They won't be for us necessarily either. But second, it's key for us to notice, uh, and we'll talk more about what this means in practice in a moment, miracles in Jesus' ministry were not a blunt show of power. They picture what the coming kingdom of God looks like. They're intended to point us to the reign of God that will finally and fully come when Jesus returns, where all sickness and all death will be perfectly brought to an end. Here's what we read in Revelation 21, 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Then the one, thank you, Debbie, I hear you. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. The miracles of Jesus point to that day when that will be finally and fully everyone's experience for those who trust in Jesus. But realize that will come, that won't come fully until Jesus returns. Notice how those are all future tense. It will be like that. It will happen that way. All those tears will be wiped away. That means in the meantime, all of them won't be. And I think it means this. We ask God to intervene in supernatural ways. And make no mistake, when somebody is healed, they get over a sickness. It's not, oh, that wasn't supernatural. God didn't do it if it wasn't a miracle. No, it's any, any healing from any sickness at any point is God. Because every single breath you have is a God gift. Everything that's natural is of God too. That's important to note. And so when Paul says to Timothy, drink a little wine because your stomach is sick. Notice he didn't say, just go and pray about it more, Timothy. Obviously, you don't have enough faith. No. He says, take some medicine. So when healing comes in natural ways, that's from God. And when healing comes in supernatural ways, that's from God too. And we need both. And we need both. And we put both together. So we ask for healing. Because in the book of James, we're told to. And so we will. But we don't command God. We can't twist God's arm. We ask him and then we trust him. Sometimes he chooses to answer with yes and I love that. Other times for his own reasons he says no and I trust that too. Paul asked for God to remove the thorn in his flesh. I think it was probably an eye sickness and three times God said no, no, no. Why? He's told actually because my power is best seen in your weakness. So I'm not going to answer your prayer for healing. Sorry. I've got something bigger and better I'm doing with your pain. Wow. I want to see miracles, okay? But not for the experience of it. It has to be about Jesus and God getting glory. Uh, Biblical scholar Craig Keener, and I was going to bring these out here and hold it. He's got a two-volume set where he's collected ancient and modern-day stories of miracles and the evidence that comes with whatever there is. They serve to encourage us that God 
that we serve is the living God who continues to work beyond the natural. Yes, he does. Here's just one short story from Keener's book. Uh, John Polkinghorne, he writes, the scientist theologian, um, John taught uh, mathematics and physics at Cambridge University before becoming an Anglican pastor. Uh, so he, kind of a level-headed guy, scientist. Anyways, he reports a woman whose left leg was paralyzed from an injury. Her doctors had given up on trying to do more for her, indicating she would remain an invalid for life. In 1980, she reluctantly and without, um, and without any positive expectation agreed to meet with an Anglican priest conducting a healing meeting. On their second meeting, she had a vision in which she was commanded to arise and walk. Polkinghorne writes, from that moment, she was able to walk, jump, and bend down completely without pain. Polkinghorne concludes that one may think what one will, but the account cannot simply be dismissed on a priori grounds as not having possibly happened. It is God's prerogative to answer our prayers as he chooses, but in faith, we will ask God to answer prayers, even for the miraculous. And we see the impact of God's presence with his people. It leads these people not to self-indulgent desire for the miraculous, but a beautiful way of sharing in life. It says they had everything in common. Some were selling off property in order to give to those who were in desperate need. They could be generous to each other. They were sharing meals in their homes. They were gathering to praise God, and the outcome was joy. And because God was there and God was working in them, God was adding to their numbers daily those who were being saved. You know, whenever the church authentically grows, when people's lives are being transformed by Jesus in the power of the Spirit, it's always a work of God. It's not because we did something fancy or made it happen. But God, interestingly, still chooses to use us in the process. Eckhart Schnabel, again, he comments on this section, and I think he's got it right. He says, the growth of a church happens when the church has the right priorities. This is not a question of strategy or method, but a question of reckoning with the power of God. See, a gospel-centered church will be an evangelistic church, meaning we will want to share the euangelion, the good news of Jesus. Because we've experienced the grace of God, we want everyone to know about it so they can respond. And so really practically, that means always being open, open to growth, open to creative ways, to helping people meet Jesus and then grow to obey everything he's commanded us. It means being open to accommodating people who maybe have some messy stuff going on as well. It's always and only a work of God to save people. But when we are faithful to King Jesus, when we let these practices committed to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, when these are our priorities, we are joining up with God's work. Sign me up. What about you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text and how it encourages us that you are the living God who has done an incredible work in history and is continuing that work until you return. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts that deeply trust you and share these same commitments, that we would have habits that form us into a people who love you deeply and love others for the sake of the rest of the world around us. And we pray, Lord, that you would be inviting us deeper and, uh, and, and fuller and richer into that kind of community life together with you at the center. Amen.